0: Thank you for listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. Welcome back once again. I'm Jeremy Myers, and we're in this series talking about church growth, which is part of an overall larger series on the book of Ephesians. Today we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, and all of these uh, podcast studies on church growth are sort of drawn not only from my studies on Ephesians, but also a book I wrote a long time ago, about twenty years ago, called "God's Blueprints for Church Growth." It's available on Amazon and pretty much anywhere books are sold. And um, it not only has these studies that I've been sh- I've been sharing with you from Ephesians, but also several studies from uh, other places in the New Testament about. Uh, church leadership and and the qualifications for elders and pastoral ministry and uh, a bunch of other studies as well, which I've included in the book. So you can get a copy for yourself if you want. I also want to let you know, if you're part of my discipleship group, I plan on trying to add some more lessons to the course on Genesis 1 today. And if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, then you know that those studies were originally part of this podcast, but As I add a lot more episodes to this podcast, those early episodes no longer are available to download. And so I'm including them in the discipleship group uh, for you that way. And you can just, it's it's free when you're part of the discipleship group. Just go sign up for the course and you can download the audio and, uh, and read the manuscripts there. Okay, so let's get into our study then of Ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. We've been talking about church growth, and a lot of people do not understand what church growth is. I think when the majority of people in the world, maybe in this especially in the United States, but but um, maybe around the entire world as well, think about church growth, they think about you know having more people in the building on Sunday morning for those services um, th- this year than they did last year. You know, or oh, church growth uh, numbers are up ten percent year over year or something like that. Or, and it's often related, you know, more money in the budget this year than last year. Or especially, well, because of budget increases and attendance increases, we have to add an addition onto the church, you know, a new wing onto the education center, or we're going to build a new sanctuary or something like that. Okay. And so those are sort of the indicators that many people look to Uh, for whether or not a particular church is growing. Uh, And so because of that sort of common idea of church growth, it's not surprising to hear uh, people make, you know, authors and others make similar sorts of statements in their books. For example, a while back, I, I read a book and here is what the author, who happened to be a pastor of a church, here's what he says near the beginning of his book. He says, since 1966, our church has grown from 125 to over 13,500 in worship. We've gone through five building programs and two complete relocation projects, the last of which cost over $90 million, including land, construction costs, and architect's fees. We have gone from an annual budget of $18,000 to an annual budget of $18 million. Okay, so you see right there in his description, he says, our church has grown. And then what does he do? He lists attendance numbers, building projects, and budget numbers. Okay, that is the popular definition of church growth today. As I wrote in my book, church is more than bodies, bucks, and bricks, (laughs) most people define church growth in those ways, bodies, bucks, and bricks. Since growth is one of the top priorities of every local church, and since many measure church growth with bodies, bucks, and bricks... Right. That means that many congregations, many church leaders will use whatever means necessary in order to get those things. I have a little comic strip that I used to hang up in my office and it shows uh, the pastor at an elders meeting and he's asking the elders for ideas on how to grow the church. And he says, besides calling every Sunday Easter, does anyone else have any ideas for improving church attendance? (laughs) Because, as you know, Easter is the most well attended Sunday of the year. I also have an article from Time magazine about a church whose ultimate goal was to get 40% of the people in its local area back into church within one year. The article reported that in order to accomplish this, right, what are they trying to do? Get more people for their Sunday morning service, and that's their ultimate goal. Literally, quote, ultimate goal. Okay, so if that's your ultimate goal, then you need to do whatever you can to get people in. And so the pastor sang and danced the Lord's praises in a, quote, electric whirlwind, which he termed aerobics of the Lord. Okay, he executes choreographed jumps, leaps, and twists that the faithful try to copy. This is from the Time article. Uh, And when the spirit really moves, he pours buckets of holy water, on his ecstatic audience. Okay, sounds a little bit like a concert, but look, uh, that's what you have to do to attract people to come and uh, you know bring up your attendance numbers. And you might be a little shocked by that, but that's actually fairly mild compared to what some churches do. Uh, one pastor in California collected a file of news clippings about how churches were employing innovations to keep their worship services from becoming dull. Uh, He says that in in only five years time, quote, some of America's largest evangelical churches have employed worldly gimmicks like slapstick comedy, wrestling exhibitions, and even a mock striptease to spice up their Sunday meetings, end quote. And look, this is what you have to do if your ultimate goal is more bodies in the pews, more bucks in the offering plate, and more bricks on your church building, right? That's just what you have to do. The thing is, is that really what church growth is? And is that really what God wants the church to be doing? Right? And and that's what we're discussing in today's study here of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Now, before we look at that, though, maybe it's important to define what church growth is. Uh, In my book, God's Blueprints for Church Growth, I do begin by defining church growth. But of course, before you can define church growth, you have to define church itself. And I define church in my book, Skeleton Church, which is a book uh, which specifically looks at the definition of the church. And the definition of the church, of course, is ultimately, in a few words as possible, it's the people of God who follow Jesus into the world. Okay, so that's what the church is. And you notice when you think about the church as the people of God who follow Jesus into the world, uh, there's nothing in there about number of people who attend you know, a brick building with a white steeple on a Sunday morning from the hours of 1030 to noon. It's not about budgets or brick buildings or anything like that. It's about the people of God who are following Jesus. That's what church is. So therefore, what is church growth? It's when the people of God mature into Christ's likeness. In my book uh, that these studies are are drawn from, God's Blueprints for Church Growth, Uh, In the first chapter, I state that church growth occurs when we teach and train the people who are the church to become what God wants them to be so they can do what God wants them to do. Okay, That's what church growth is. It's when God's people become more like Jesus so they can be what he wants them to be and do what he wants them to do. And when you think about that definition of church growth, it has, once again, nothing whatsoever to do with how many people are doing it, or how much money is in your budget, or how many bricks are on your building. This idea of church growth was foreshadowed in Ephesians 4.13, which we've already studied, where Paul describes the model that the church is patterned after. Do you remember what the model is? The model, of course, is Jesus Christ. Christ likeness. And so if we're trying to become more like Jesus, act like Jesus, look like Jesus, so that when people see us they see Jesus. Again, it has nothing whatsoever to do with getting 13,500 people or 130,000 whatever people into your into your services or an 18 million dollar budget or anything like that. It's about becoming more and more like Jesus Christ and loving this world more and more like Jesus Christ. When that occurs, that is church growth, whether it's 13,000 people or 13 people or three people, okay? Church is not defined, so important. Let me reiterate this. Church is not defined by how many people meet or when they meet or where they meet. The church is the people of God who follow Jesus into the world. And therefore, church growth happens when those people who are following Jesus, learn to follow him better. Okay. And when the spiritually immature Christians that we talked about last time in Ephesians 4:14, 4, when the spiritually immature Christians are protected so that they can grow up into spiritual, mature adults as Christians. Okay? So we, I, I, last time I talked about sort of the two tasks of the church, and they are guarding the children, and we looked at that last time, so that they can grow into adults. That's what we're looking at today. Church growth happens when the individual Christians who make up the church grow into spiritual maturity, so that they look like Jesus and act like Jesus and love other people like Jesus, Okay. What does that look like? Well, there's a variety of things you can call it. Uh, you know, maybe it involves learning the Bible and learning to obey the Bible. Sure, uh, it involves uh, learning what their spiritual gifts are and how to put them into practice. Okay, church growth is about building one another up into Christ-like maturity and service. That's what church growth is. This is biblical church growth. And this has amazing ramifications. In fact, if you're a pastor or a church leader and are struggling with, oh, how come our, we don't have as many people as that church down the road? Look, this can be in, incredibly liberating. And it was for me when I first discovered this as a young pastor over 20 years ago. Okay, It, it, it literally means that your church can grow even if you have fewer members or fewer in attendance this year than you did last year even if you have to sell your building because you can no longer afford to pay the mortgage even if right your budget is smaller and shrinking because of inflation and and and, and people just can't give as much anymore okay if a church loses 100 people you know they were they they were let's say they were 200 and now they're down to 100 church growth can still occur in that situation okay, if those hundred that are remaining are becoming more and more like Jesus, okay? Similarly, just because a church, say, doubles in size, let's say they go from 500 to 1,000, that doesn't necessarily mean that church growth is occurring there. If those 1,000 people are not developing into more Christ-like maturity to become more like Jesus, then even though their attendance doubled in size, which also probably means their budget grew, That doesn't necessarily mean the church has grown. Maybe no real church growth occurred in that situation, even though more people are showing up. Okay? It maybe sort of helpful to think about families in this regard. Uh, I like to often think of the church as a family of God. And sometimes when you wonder how things should be done in a church, it's helpful to think of how things are done in a family. All right? Uh, do you think that a family who has lots and lots of kids is necessarily more successful or better or more pleasing to God than a family who has fewer kids? No, you don't think that. We don't say that, well, that family... By the way, I come from a family of 10 kids. I'm second oldest of 10, okay? And we had, I really enjoyed my growing up years. My, My parents did a fantastic, wonderful job of raising us, and I am forever grateful to them. But does it necessarily mean that because we had a family of 10 kids, that we were more successful, we were a better family, that God was more pleased with us, that we were a growing family or whatever, than maybe the family down the street who only had two kids? No, it means nothing of the sort. Large families are not inherently better or more pleasing to God or doing a better job of family growth and development than families of, than smaller families. Okay, so uh, family growth has nothing whatsoever to do with the size of the family or the wealth of the family or the, the size of their house. Similarly, church growth has nothing whatsoever to do with the size of the, you know, the number of people or the budget of that, that group of people or the, the size of the building that they meet in, okay? Church growth occurs when Christians grow into Christ-like maturity, so that they love God, love each other, and love other people more with each passing year. That is church growth. And that is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter four, verses 15 and 16. So let's look at these uh, real quickly. Okay, let me read them first. This is the final part of the section on church growth in Ephesians four. So Paul is continuing the sentence that he's been been, uh, writing this whole time. He says, but here's how this occurs. Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things, into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes, what? Growth of the body, for the edifying of itself in love. You saw there he mentions growth twice, at the beginning and the end. This is how church growth occurs. Let's look through the the descriptive phrases here uh, one at a time. First, he talks about the phrase, speaking the truth. This is one word in the Greek, and the word is only used one other time in scripture, in Galatians 4.16, where it refers primarily to teaching the word of God or preaching the gospel, okay? And the phrase means the same thing here. Uh, then. Then, at least I would argue it does. So so Paul is basically saying that the primary way church growth is accomplished is through speaking the truth of Scriptures, with an emphasis on gospel-related truths. Uh, uh, this, uh, This means that teaching and learning about Scripture is one of the primary keys to church growth. Again, that's one of the reasons I teach the way I do through my podcast when I preach, that's why I tend to preach through books of the Bible, because I want to emphasize the Scripture so that the people can learn the Scriptures, what God wants for their lives, and then learn to put it into practice. Why? Not just so they can gain Bible knowledge, because this is one of the primary methods through which people grow into maturity, and therefore, church growth occurs. Okay? Now, this doesn't mean that this is what people want. Uh, lots of people don't want strong biblical preaching, and teaching. That's what I've discovered. Um, sometimes they want their pastor to get up there and twirl and dance, okay? I imagine if you, you know, or, or give away hummers or whatever for the, the lucky person sitting in, in seat number 123B. I've heard churches that do that, okay? Um, but when people want those sorts of things, it's like children, again, going back to last week, Wanting cotton candy and Twinkies instead of vegetables and 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 chicken for their meal, okay? Of course, immature children don't know what is healthy for them and what they want. Similarly, immature Christians don't know what is healthy for them. And so they want all sorts of bad food for themselves, which will not lead to maturity and not lead to growth. Which is why Paul says here, and Paul says elsewhere, Paul tells Timothy, okay, and Jesus talks about this, uh, about teaching the scriptures, understanding the scriptures. This is how maturity happens. And that's one of the that's what Paul is talking about here when he says speaking the truth in love. This idea of speaking the truth is related to preaching the scriptures, teaching the scriptures. If the church is going to protect children, guard children and grow them into spiritual adults, spiritually mature adults, then the focus must be on scripture. All right? to to dig into the truth of Scripture. Uh, Only the truth of God helps people grow spiritually. And when lives are transformed and people begin to mature, then the church begins to grow. Okay, But Paul goes on to clarify, he's not just about speaking the truth, it's about speaking it in love. That's the next phrase there, speaking the truth in love. And uh, some Christians seem to focus primarily on speaking the truth, okay, but they lack the love. Uh, Others say that love is more important, and you can sort of fudge on the truth a little bit, which I don't think is truthful or loving, honestly. Uh, But uh, you need both, both truth and love. And uh, the ones who are focused on truth, you know, they, they might be real prickly. They're sort of porcupine Christians, lots of great points, <laughs> but you don't want to get too close to them um, because you're going to get hurt, okay? Uh, And then others err on the other side, where they just want everybody to get along and sing kumbaya and love one another, and we're not going to talk about anything that might ruffle the feathers or rock the boat or that anybody has any disagreements over. We're not going to talk about sin or Jesus being the only way to eternal life or, you know, whatever you want to do, those sorts of things. Very, very loving, but not a whole lot of solid truth there for people to pin their lives upon okay? The the, the right balance is the middle road between those two extremes. We need both truth and love, A, a, a good balance between truth and love. To err on one side or the other is always going to result in problems. If you have truth without love, you're going to be very judgmental, critical, hurtful, and even hateful towards other people. If you have love without truth, then you're going to be you know, sentimental and, and blind and ignorant, leading people astray, and that's not helpful either. All right? Um, you need both truth and love, speaking the truth in a loving way. And uh, w- we see that this is what Jesus did and what God does. This is the way Scripture is. Some of the truths in Scripture are very hard to hear, but we need to hear them sometimes because that is loving and truth, uh, uh, truthful. Real truth uh, is loving by default, um, but it needs to be spoken in a loving way. And this is exactly what Paul writes about elsewhere And over in 1 Corinthians 13, this great love chapter. He says, even if you have all knowledge, but have not love, then you have nothing, right? You could be a Bible expert, be able to win at Bible trivia, recite hundreds, maybe thousands of Bible verses, argue theology with the best theologians in the world. But if you have have not love, then you have nothing. Without love, you don't really have truth. In fact, when you really have truth, it leads you to love. Okay, real truth is loving by default, but real truth also leads you to love other people. I've often said that one of the litmus tests for sound theology is love. Jesus was the most uh, truthful person to ever exist on planet earth, right? Because he was God incarnate. Jesus was also the most loving person to ever exist on planet earth, right? True truth leads you to real love, just like what we see in Jesus. Jesus never avoided the truth. He spoke it plainly in the most loving words possible. Yeah, he had disagreements. By the way, did you ever notice who he disagreed with? Who he had harsh words for? It was always and only religious people. The harshest words of Jesus. Lots of leaders today say, oh, we need to condemn the world for their sin and get rid of these people over there and call those people to repentance. But it's always the (laughs) non-Christians. that are the target of these harsh words. Uh, That's not the way Jesus did it. He had loving, kind words of forgiveness for unbelievers. His harshest words were reserved for the religious people who should have known better, right? who were using religion as a weapon to hurt people. Uh, Jesus never used truth that way. Uh, he, his harshest and hardest words were always and only reserved for religious people who were misusing the truth of God in an unloving way. God behaves similarly, which of course is not surprising since Jesus perfectly reveals God to us. Um, what's surprising about God's revelation of truth to us is that he rarely speaks truth to us until we are ready and willing to hear it. This is very important and will help you sort of navigate this, this fine path between truth and love, finding that middle ground, Okay. Uh, God doesn't sit down with you or sit down with any of us on the first day of our Christian life and beat us over the head with everything we're doing wrong in our life, does he? He doesn't say, well, welcome to the family of God. It's day one. Here's the list of 73,000 sins you, you committed this last year. I want you to get rid of them all by tomorrow, right? That's overwhelming. What God does is he reveals to us over time, the things that he wants to work on us. And it's different for every person. All right? You know, he does this through the Holy Spirit, through us, gently showing us, pointing out to us the areas in our life that need to be fixed and corrected, uh, the, the rooms of our life that need to be swept out. And he doesn't pour it all on us at once. It's slowly, gently, over time, leading us into the truth of the areas in our life that he wants us to work on. That is the loving way to do this. Um, sometimes God won't point out faults unless we honestly ask him to do so. You know, we all sin in various ways all the time. And most of those, usually we are unaware of, but through patience and and kindness, God waits to reveal our faults to us until we ask him to search our hearts, see if there's any wicked way in us. And even then it's through the gentle nudging of the Holy Spirit. You got that? skeleton in your closet over there, you might want to do something about that. And I can help you. I can show you how. Okay, He gently, kindly takes us to scripture to reveal our falsehoods. He never beats us over the head. Usually when we're feeling great guilt, it's not from God, but it's from other human beings who are beating us over the head. Okay? The Holy Spirit softly, gently, tenderly, kindly, like Jesus, washes our feet with the water of the word And cleanses us from all sin. When we are following the example of Jesus, the example of God, the example of the Holy Spirit, when we are speaking the truth and love the way they do, then just because we see a fault in someone else, okay, that does not entitle us or require us to go over and point it out to them. Right? Uh, because that's not what God does. It's not what Jesus did. It's not what the Holy Spirit does. Even when we are invited by somebody, hey, brother, sister, uh, have you seen anything in my life that needs to be fixed? Even then, we must do so in loving and uh, kind ways. Never harsh, never judgmental, never accusatory. It's Satan who accuses, not Jesus. So therefore not us either. All right? And it 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 is critically important that if and when we are going to point out a problem in somebody else's life, first of all, we make sure we've taken care of it in our own life, right? Otherwise, that's just hypocritical. Pointing out the, the 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 speck of sawdust in our brother's eye. Well, we've got a plank on our own. We we can't do that. But when we do come to pointing out a problem in someone else's life, I'm just gonna speak the truth to them. Okay, we must always also offer to be part of the solution because why? That's what God does as well. God never points out an area of sin in our lives that he doesn't also show us how he himself is part of the solution, how he has provided us the power or the resources or the wisdom or the friends or something to help us get through that problem. If you're going to point out Someone else's fault, then you also better be willing and ready and able to get down on your knees and serve them and wash their feet like Jesus did. Okay. Jesus is walking around, he sees their, their 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 dirty, filthy, disgusting feet before this Last Supper. He doesn't say, Hey, all of you go wash your feet before you come eat a meal with me. No. He gets out a basin and a towel and he washes their feet himself. If you're gonna point out the fault in somebody, make sure you are ready and willing and able to wash their feet, okay? And if you're, all of that is, I'm not talking about feet, but some area of sin in their lives. Be willing to be part of the solution. And if you're not willing to do that, then my suggestion is to remain silent on, on you know, keep your mouth shut on the, the fault that you see in them. Uh, there's numerous examples like this in scripture. Um, that we could go to, but I, I think you get the point. I, I, I found um, eight tips on how to achieve this balance be t- between truth and love um, in one of the books I was reading, and here's the eight tips. First, remember what the ultimate source of truth is. If you feel someone is in sin, you better have a strong biblical case for it. And you cannot base truth on what your opinion is, or what tradition is, or the way we've always done it, or what some pastor, or author, or teacher said, okay? God's Word is truth. And so make sure, if you're going to point out something to somebody, that you have a biblical basis for it, a true biblical basis. Second, make sure God is actually calling you to address the problem. Maybe He just wants you to pray about it, okay? Maybe He's pointed it out to you because he doesn't actually want you to do anything about it, but because he wants you to pray about it. Um, maybe, and I often find this is true. Sometimes God is pointing something out to you in someone else, not because he wants you to do something about it in their life, but because you have the same problem and he's trying to make you see it in your own life. Right? Right thing they taught us in kindergarten, when you point at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. I think God sometimes points out faults in somebody else's life to serve as a mirror so that we can see something similar in our own lives. So uh, when you see something, make sure God is, is actually calling you to address the problem in their life. Third, ask yourself if you have contributed to the problem. Okay? Sometimes we get in disagreements, fights, arguments with other people, and we say, oh, well, it's all their fault. And really, it takes you know two to tango. Uh, it takes two people to fight and argue, and uh, almost always, both people have faults. So really, maybe it's not their problem, but your problem that God is trying to address. Fourth, try to discover what your motive is in pointing out the error. Do you just want to get noticed? Do you want to get praised for or pointing out the sin in our midst or something. um, You know, maybe you just had a bad day and you feel like lashing out at somebody. So just be careful about your motives when you are addressing sin in somebody else. Fifth, uh, if you trying to discover, I'm sorry, if if you confront, uh, are you doing it in a biblical way? And of course uh, there's guidelines for that in Matthew 18. Sixth, You might want to ask yourself if you're demanding perfection. None of us are perfect, okay? And some people love to avoid looking at their own mistakes by focusing on the mistakes of others. So uh, God doesn't demand you to be perfect in this life, and so we should not be demanding others to be perfect. Seventh, if you do confront the person, uh, can you give input in the form of constructive suggestions, rather than outright criticism and complaint. Sometimes speaking the truth in love is all about our wording and the phrasing that we use. Finally, are you able to be part of the solution? And that's what I've already talked about earlier. Okay? God's never going to ask you to point out the sin in somebody else's life without also asking you to be part of the solution. And this is so key. If you're not ready, willing, and able to be part of the solution in somebody else's life, then you shouldn't be doing anything about pointing out the error in their life either. These sorts of principles will help you speak the truth in love. But let's move on because there's lots of other uh, ideas in these verses that we want to talk about. In the last half of verse 15, Paul writes that we will grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So this statement reveals two truths about personal growth. First, it reveals that when we grow, we grow up in all things. Okay, this is just a statement about maturity. You're not going to mature in one area while leaving others immature. That's not real maturity. Maturity is when you grow up in all areas. We grow up in in every way that God wants us to grow. It's a well rounded development. All right, again, this is just the way it works in true human development. All right, we're born and as we age then we're developing emotionally psychologically physically mentally and in all these other variety of ways and if we are failing falling behind in one or two of these then it's not true maturity you're not growing it you know someone can be can be an adult physically you know they grow to their 20s and 30s but if they're not developed fully developed mentally or psychologically then we say they're handicapped or have some sort of issue because they have not fully developed uh, in all ways. Same thing with spiritual maturity. When you're going to grow into Christlike maturity, then you will be developing in all ways. The second truth about growth from verse 15 concerns the goal. The goal is to become like the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Again, he already talked about this. Paul. This is a summary sort of of what Paul said earlier about uh, the the target of the church being Jesus Christ. He's our pattern that we're padding ourselves after. And that's just what he's saying here. The goal is to become like Jesus Christ. That's how we know when we have arrived into Christian maturity, when we look and act like Jesus. And when people look at us, they see Jesus, okay? So finally then in Ephesians 4.16, Paul is concluding, summarizing this revolutionary passage on church church growth. He basically takes everything he said up to this point and and summarizes it all in one final great passage or, or, or one final verse here, one final closing thought. Okay. Church growth is when the whole body joined and knit together by which every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, right? Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So we have the whole body. You don't just have the pastors being the ministers, no. You have everybody doing what every joint supplies, a effective working by which every part does its share, right? Remember, in the crew who are the ministers, it's not the pastors and the church leaders. The crew is everybody else who does the work of the ministry. That's what Paul is talking about here. And when this happens, it causes growth, church growth of the body, The people, they grow into maturity, and what does it look like? Edifying of itself in love. That's what we just talked about, speaking the truth in love. So a healthy and mature body is when every part functions properly and does its part. An eye does the seeing, the ear does the hearing, the mouth does the talking, the feet do the walking, the hands do the working. Again, this goes back to spiritual gifts. We've talked about previously on that as well, understanding your shape and how you fit into the body of Christ And then working to build on that and develop those gifts and talents and abilities and interests so that you can help and serve and love others. And uh, in this way, they love and help and serve you as well because they are doing the part that they supply. And it's symbiotic. As we love and serve others, they love and serve us. And this is how the body functions. Each part does its share. And so the body remains healthy. And the end is love, as Paul mentions there at the end. So Paul is concluding this section in his letter about church growth. He, he returns to love. It's all about love. Again, as I said earlier, love is the litmus test for your theology, for your ideas, for truth. Okay? We are to speak the truth in love because this brings about the edification of the body. And church growth only happens within the context of love. Love is the beginning, the middle, and the end of church growth. Love causes Christian maturity, and Christian maturity results in love. I would say if you want to focus on church growth, don't focus on programs, don't focus on your buildings or attendance numbers or budgets or anything like that. Instead, just focus on love. How can you be the most loving people in your family? in your neighborhood, in your community, at your workplace. Okay? As we love and as we are loved, then we grow into the love of Christ. Do we grow into Christ-like maturity? Each person becomes spiritually mature adults who are then what? Better able to love. <laughs> love each other, love God, love the community, okay? And all of this looks just like Jesus Christ. That is true church growth, loving others like Jesus uh, in the truth that he has given to us. Uh, that's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. And I, I hope you've enjoyed this series on church growth and maybe opened your eyes and changed your understanding a little bit on how church growth occurs and how it happens and uh, what God has said about ch- true church growth. For me, it's really liberating, as I said earlier, because as a pastor, I didn't have to worry about attendance numbers, or, 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 or the budget, or you know whether we were going to be in a building or not. None of those things mattered. The only thing that mattered was doing my best to use the spiritual gifts God has given to me to love and serve, and teach and provide for and protect those people that God had placed in my circle okay, in, in the people of uh, of God that he had surrounded me with. and then in, in teaching and encouraging and helping them do the same for me and for others, uh, that was the goal. And whether it was three people or thirty people or three hundred people, that was how church growth occurred when I was a pastor. and it's still how I engage in in teaching and ministry today. and it's why I'm teaching this podcast because I hope that these things will help teach and uh, feed you so that you can become more mature as a follower of Jesus as well. Next week, we're going to pick back up in Ephesians 4.17. We'll probably be picking up the pace a little bit also, because we're getting into this section on Ephesians where um, I'm able to take a few more verses at a time. So (laughs) uh, we will be finishing on with Ephesians. And eventually, all these studies will also be forming a course in my discipleship group, Uh, If you want more of this kind of teaching, I do encourage you to join my discipleship group. You can get, I don't know how many courses I have there, but I'm adding more content later today to the Genesis course, and eventually we'll be adding more content to the Gospel Dictionary course. The next entry there that I'm working on is the entry on the word love, which fits right in line with what we're talking about today. So thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time when we pick back up with Ephesians 4. 17.